All right, we're pleased to have uh, on Triple's Alley Report now Ted Robinson, who has done Major League Baseball, has been the voice of the 49ers, the Warriors, Wimbledon, tennis, uh, Olympic short track speed skating. He's done just about everything. Maybe not darts. I'm not sure. Uh, no darts. But otherwise, he's, he's pretty much run the gamut. Ted, thanks for, for joining us today. How are things going? Ray, it's great to be with you. I love the name of your podcast. Um, it's one of those things that you can never... Uh, I wish I copyrighted because Triple's Alley was the uh, the name I gave to the uh, right center field uh, 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 alley at Pac Bell Park, as I still call it, the year it opened, uh, when the first triple in the history of the ballpark was hit by Doug Mirabelli, who I right. think you would beat in a 40-yard dash today. It's a leaner. And uh, so it's anyway, I'm, I'm, I love the fact that that, uh, you know, it's not nearly as, as cool as McCovey Cove, which Mark Purdy, our friend, gave, right. named that. Uh, but yeah, I, was, I feel kind of proud that that's lived on because that was what I started calling it in 2000 because of Mirabelli. I did not realize that you, you coined that phrase. Well, I know. Nobody does. And like I said, <laughs> you know, it's one of those things that it, it, you say it today and people roll their, oh yeah, right, right, right. But no, that's really that's really where it happened and it kind of stuck over time yeah. because it is one of the great signature features of, 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 a, of a timeless ballpark. Well, that's why I chose the title because you know it's about the Giants and it's about San Francisco baseball by that by that title, but uh, I might have to give you some copyright fees or something if, ever, if I ever make any money off of this. Well, you know the story, it's been told a few times. Crook, uh, Crook and Kipe love telling it was that, you know, Mirabelli hits the first triple in the first game, the day Kevin Elster hits three home runs, which is what everybody remembers, Dodgers shortstop, hits three home runs on opening day at the ballpark, but Mirabelli hits the first triple, and I'm calling it, and was fairly incredulous and probably poking what I thought was harmless fun at, of all people, Mirabelli hitting a triple. And the next day in the clubhouse, guys were really jumping my back and it was fairly good natured, but there was some some sharpness to you know giving Mirabelli this grief. Yeah, and and I got along great with Mirabelli, so Mirabelli was the guy that finally voiced up and gave me enough grief. And I said, "Listen, you you have the easiest way to shut me up." He goes, "How?" I said, "Hit another one." Mm-hmm. And what do you do? Well, I said, "If you hit another one, I'll give you a case of wine, your choice." And of course, Mirabelli's from Wichita. All right, so I'm assuming that's you know first of all there's no shot he's going to hit another triple. Right. Secondly, even if he does, this is going to be a fairly inexpensive bet. Well, my good friend Sean Estes walks over and gets in Mirabelli's ear and says, Mirabelli chimes up, "Okay, if I hit another triple, Silver Oak." Oh, okay. Well, Sean and I were good friends, and of course Sean was it was just clubhouse humor, and right. and I got it. So anyway, we're into August now. And Mirabelli's, it's August. Mirabelli's a catcher. There's no way he's going to hit a triple. Well, damned if he doesn't hit a ball into the triples alley. And he's running to second base. And Sonny Jackson, the third base coach, has both arms up in the stop motion. Right behind him on the top row of the Giants dugout are 20 guys waving their <laughs> arms in the windmill. Because they, they, I mean, they're laughing. They know what's going on. I mean, yeah. not that the wine was the significant yeah issue but it was Mirabelli could he hit another triple and damned if Mirabelli doesn't run right through Sonny Jackson's sign he goes to third the throws wide he slides in safely and about three of the guys immediately turn and point up to the booth at Uh. me and so within about two weeks Dan Barron a great guy Silver Oak brings down the case we do a little clubhouse presentation and of course I had to write the check (laughs) and so years later Ray I saw Mirabelli I was doing the playoffs and he was with the Red Sox at this point 
And uh, so this is 2007, and Mirabelli's now Wakefield, Tim Wakefield's catcher with the Red Sox. And I'm there doing the playoffs, and I go up to him, and I haven't seen him in a couple of years now. He goes, I still have three bottles. (laughs) (laughs) So... Well, that's a good sign, though. I mean, at least he didn't milk it dry after a week. That would have been troubling. But uh, all for the Silver Oak. That, that's got to be one of your proudest moments of broadcasting when the whole dugout points up to you. <laughs> well, it was, it's what happens in baseball. Look, it's yeah. what makes baseball different. Ray, you know this. The, the bond, and even with a team, and I was blessed because the, uh, the teams I was with, for the most part, and, of course, Minnesota Twins were the best, given the size of the market and the era in which I was there. But even the Giants teams, uh, for the nine years I was there, the Giants teams, the guys were great, uh, almost all of them. And, and you developed bonds and relationships with them, even to the point where I went uh, I last, or as we're speaking, I guess it was two weeks ago now, to Peter McGowan's service at the ballpark. And I was was a incredibly nice to be invited first of all as a, a private service but there I see um, Rob Nen and Sean Dunstan and Sean Estes and Marvin Bernard and Mark Gardner and Dave Rigetti uh, Rigetti I mean my first year with the Giants Rags was still pitching and uh, you know, these are guys I all knew well as players and that's to fall back in it's almost like going back to a class reunion yeah 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 I'm sure it had that that feeling I mean you talk about the losses for the Giants in this offseason uh Frank Robinson, Peter McGowan, Willie McCovey, Al Gallagher, who played uh, infield for them in the 70s, yeah. and, and Hank Greenwald. I mean, that, that's a, a tough offseason, and I know they, they like to use the phrase a lot, family, with the Giants. But I've talked to ex-players who only played a couple of years there, and that's the phrase they've used. I've run into them down in the fantasy camp and so forth. So uh, I know that's been felt by a lot of people. Yeah, Ray, and I think... You raised a great point because this came to light in the service for Peter. Uh, and it was well said by several of the speakers at the service that that was something Peter McGowan really stressed, was bringing the former Giants back in the fold and reestablishing the bonds, no pun intended, with with Mays and strengthening them to the point that Willie at 88, uh, 87 I think, yeah. coming up on 88, yeah. came and spoke at Peter's service. Uh, that Mac, uh, who we just lost, as you referenced, but that Mac was a part of the Giants. That Marichal has come over my time. Marichal came back, of course. Cepeda, uh, who's in the Hall of Fame because of the efforts put forth by the Giants. And I give Bob Rose, who was the VP of Communications, really was the guy that, that Orlando owes a ton to for the push that got him in the Hall of Fame. But all of these things happened under Peter's watch, that he triggered that. And um, I've often talk to people about this my nine years with the Giants and seeing some extraordinary moments in the ballpark and I didn't see a World Series with the Giants but a lot of winning a lot of great players but there's no question the highlight for me there's no any kid that grows up a baseball fan could never emulate this dream was the number of times I sat in Mike Murphy's office before a game and sat in the corner with my mouth shut but my ears as open as they could be and just listened to Willie and Willie, to Mays and McCovey tell stories. And I wrote, actually wrote, a, used to write a column for the Chronicle the first two years of the ballpark. And I wrote several columns about that called Mays and McCovey Unplugged. And the stories they told. They're unbelievable. And, and it, was, it was just the greatest experience yeah. 
that any person, and I said way better than calling any home run, anything Bonds did while I was there, to listen to those two guys tell stories was phenomenal. Yeah, I'm not going to ask you to recount the stories unless there's one that really (laughs) sticks out with you uh, between Mays and McCovey, but there really are so many. Um, I mean, the thing that people I don't think understand about Mays now because they didn't see him play was just how alert he was on the field and how he saw the whole game and what a highly intelligent player he was as well as having the ability that was the combination yeah i mean and, and, and again specific stories i wouldn't uh, those are those are for Mays and McCovey to tell yeah. but uh, you know gist of things that Mays talked often about how he would he would position the other fielders from center field he saw what was going on he could see the catcher's signals he would know what the pitcher was going to throw he'd position everybody else and then, of course, the famous story of Willie's catch, where he would often tell this story about how it wasn't that big a deal. Mm-hmm. And obviously, there there is there is a, a shred of truth, I think, to that, because as I learned in my time talking to other great outfielders over the day, that the polo grounds, I never saw the polo grounds, but I know what it was like. Um, Tiger Stadium in my day was the same thing, where you had a 448, I think, Tiger Stadium was. Uh, the old Yankee Stadium was 460 something to the yeah. flagpoles, but those center fields, center fielders loved that because they could run without fear. They could turn and run back without fear. And Mays talked about that a lot about the polo grounds catch, the the Vic Wirtz catch, and Willie would just sit there like it was heck, nothing, man. I, I caught that ball over my right shoulder on purpose. I positioned my body so I could catch it like that. <laughs> And I'm doing a very lame imitation of the of Willie's high pitched voice, but that he talked like that. He said, "Yeah, yeah no, because I I did that on purpose, man, so I could, so I could stop and throw the ball back. I knew I had to throw the ball back." Yeah. And we're sitting there going, "That's one of the greatest catches ever." And he goes, "No, that wasn't that hard. That wasn't that hard." I mean, and that's, but the, I mean, that's that's just a tiny little snippet of the things you would hear, and you'd listen. And Willie was serious, telling you that he actually positioned his body so that he was more concerned about being able to stop and pivot and throw the ball back to the infield to prevent an advance than he was about catching the ball. That's the thing that stood out on that highlight is how he got rid of that ball so quickly and got it back in so that somebody couldn't tag up and take two bases because they could on a throw that far. Uh, I remember Bob Feller saying, that wasn't the best catch ever, so I've seen better than that. And I was thinking to myself, I'll bet you Willie has had better catches than that. Yeah, I can't remember. You know, I can't remember if he ever talked about that. But I, yeah, I would say, I mean, the God, the greatest catch. I, I didn't see it in person. The greatest catch I ever remember seeing was Ron Swoboda in the in the 1969 World Series off Brooks Robinson and being a kid, psychotic Mets fan, watching an what was an absolute baseball miracle unfold. That was that was basically that was the icing on the cake after seeing so many crazy things all year. To see Ron Swoboda, who wasn't that great a player, yeah. make a catch that spectacular, and to think about the the risk he took in even trying to catch that it's ball an inside the Parker, right? Yeah. And then he actually makes the catch yeah. was crazy. Yeah. yeah. After that, the Orioles are like, "Oh well, crap. <laughs> There's no way we're going to win this now." Uh, so let's bring it back to the present day, and I definitely want to talk some more baseball with you. And I know a lot of people who are listening here. Wondering about the time with the 49ers. You were with Tim Ryan the last few years, Eric Davis before that, and you and Tim were a great team uh, on the air. I remember listening to the last game against the Rams, and you're following Kittles trying to go for the record. And I'm driving around, and, and I'm like, I had to go into the store, but I stayed in the car in the parking lot listening. 
you know, for, for a so-called meaningless game to draw listeners in like that, that, that takes a special talent. You guys are a great team, and you had some great moments, obviously, with the 49ers. Uh, what's your attitude and your outlook now uh, about the change and what's going to happen with you going forward? Um, well, thank you for saying that, Ray, because that last game at the Coliseum against the Rams was hard because I knew it was my last game, and I was very uh, insistent that there be no announcement of that beforehand. Uh, and so that was, you know, that was obviously that was emotional, but ultimately you've done the same thing. You have to be a professional, and, and that's what I, I hoped for. That's what I wanted. Um, and I had, I had 10 great years, and the last five with Tim, who was terrific. Tim... I, I knew that I didn't really know him before he got the job. I had come to know him casually because he called Fox games. And, you know, every so often we get the 49ers. But I didn't know him at all before that. But one thing I did know was that he was a professional broadcaster. And I had listened to him quite a bit when he was doing a satellite radio NFL show. Especially my first few years as the 49er announcer, I listened a lot to Tim's show driving to and from Santa Clara because I was trying to learn the NFL. I had been around college football for a long, long time. I knew college football pretty well, but I didn't have a great working knowledge of the NFL. Just hadn't, I'd done, you know, games here and there for Westwood One, but nothing on a regular basis. So Tim helped educate me through hours of listening to him in the car. Anyway, the the end of the story becomes after uh, Gary Plummer was my first partner and Gary was incredibly welcoming to me. And so I had two years with Gary, three years with Eric, who was also terrific and came at it from a different viewpoint as a fairly recent former player uh, and a former 49er, which was a nice thing to have with Eric. But then when Tim came in, the, the professional broadcaster in him was outstanding. And we had, I thought we had a great partnership. The only sad part for me is that Tim still hadn't seen a playoff game in five years. And I, I hope that changes for him uh, going forward. And I, I, I think 49er fans have benefited greatly from Tim being there, and I truly hope that that I hope that Tim continues to have the ability to shine going forward. Uh, and you're still working with the 49ers in a community capacity, correct? Yeah, we're working that out right now. Okay, we're working that out right now. But right. Uh, yeah, there's a uh, there's a process that's ongoing as we speak. It's going well. I, I fully trust it will continue to go well, and uh, and assuming that it does, then yeah, there'll be. I don't imagine, uh, I, I think there'll be a, maybe a, some involvement with some alumni capacity. Okay. Keena Turner is a friend, and I respect Keena tremendously. And uh, I mean, I saw Joe Montana, who we go back to college days. Mm-hmm. I saw Joe at the Peter McGowan service, and we talked about that. And yeah, there'll be some opportunities, I'm sure, down the line for me to participate and help out with some alumni events here or there. But um, it'll be no heavy lifting. And, um, and again, I assume that everything plays out on the track it is, which has been very good. The, the, the 49ers, uh, despite the fact that this change was not something that that was uh, expected by me, has been handled very well. Well, you're, you're going to be busy no matter what. I know that. Uh, would you want to do baseball again? You know, that's, a, that, that's interesting, Ray. I've had a lot of people ask me that, and uh, that's hard. I, I think at this point in life, and especially having done it before, the, the 162 – would be would be tough. Um, I would never say never. Uh, you know, I think I've been, had that hammered into my head enough times to say don't say never. So I wouldn't say never, but I would say would that would be something that you know, if it were to if it were to happen, 
closer to home would be a smarter thing. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's going to happen across the country, that's probably, or if that opportunity came up across the country, that would probably be a lower likelihood. Um, I did go back in 2011, so that's almost eight years ago. Now, I did go back to the Minnesota Twins in a special year where they were in transition, and I went back and I did about 30 games for them, mostly road. And we did have, a, obviously, had a conversation or two about, you know, would I be interested in doing the, the full season? But back then, in 2011, I was still uh, not only 49ers, but still with Wimbledon and French Open and things like that. And it was just, there, those were decisions I had already made. I wasn't going to walk away from those yeah. jobs to go back and take a full-time baseball job. Well, you know, now the situation has changed. I'm also eight years further along in my life. Yeah. So... Um, it's it's a hard one, Ray, and I, I will tell you this. I think baseball, I sense it's coming to this reality now uh, that quantity does not equal quality, and that's the old baseball mindset. And I lived it for a long, long time, and I it, I, I have you know separated from a couple of jobs really in route because of that, because there was this insistence you have to do 162 every day, this insistence that you have to be there for 30 spring training games, and my God, and look, I, I loved Hank Greenwald. Loved working with him. We became good friends. We you know, became family friends through the years. Uh, post Hank retiring and me leaving the Giants, Hank and his wife Carla became friends with my parents. I mean, it was really a wonderful relationship that evolved over me working with Hank. And Hank was that mindset. Hank had that old school. Hank wouldn't miss a game for anything. And I don't, I don't think that way. I never did. Um, I don't think the Cal Ripken streak is a as big an issue as a lot of people in baseball made it out to be. Um, I'm not knocking Cal Ripken. I just don't think the streak in itself is that it's just, to me, it's again, it's about what, at what cost do I sacrifice quality Mm -hmm. for the sake of quantity? Mm -hmm. And I think baseball needs to come to grips with that, with everybody, everybody who works in the sport at a time when the games take longer than ever. And there's more demands in in our particular world, Ray, there's more demands with pregame, postgame, social media demands on a daily basis it isn't and i'm just i don't mean this derogatory but it isn't what red barber and mel allen did years ago of going to the ballpark and turning the microphone on in two hours and 15 minutes the game's over and now it's three hours and 40 minutes preceded by 45 minutes of pregame, 45 minutes of post game and then all your other nonsense you have to do over times 162 yeah that's a lot. That's that's a lot. Uh, I wouldn't even want to calculate what what you want to make per hour <laughs> to, to do that because it is, it's more hours now. There's no doubt about it. Uh, it's multi-platforms, and you know, Major League Baseball has definitely emphasized Twitter, social media, uh, a lot more. Do you think uh, with the rule changes that we've seen that sometimes baseball is trying too hard, that it should just be what it is? And, and have people accept that? Or is there something to the notion that you have to try to move it forward because the game has changed some over the years? Yeah, that's, that's a great conversation point, Ray. And we go through this all the time. And I, I actually had lunch with uh, Bruce Jenkins a couple of weeks ago, and we go back a long ways. And Bruce is a, a baseball, you know, a, a, a purist, if I use that phrase. And I don't mean that in a negative way. But, um, and I go back and forth on that because there's some parts of baseball that, look, the romantic appeal of baseball is it's, in essence, the same game we grew up watching that I grew up as a kid when my dad took me to my first game at Chase Stadium. And, uh, you grew up watching in Los Angeles as a young kid. But then there's also reality. And I go back 20 years 
here on the peninsula where we're talking now when I coached Little League here when my own son was playing. And 20 years ago, I would sit on the bench during Little League games and I would turn to my coaching partner and say, look at Johnny in left field. And they go, what do you mean? I go, okay, he's not going to play baseball after this year. As I could tell, Johnny was 11 years old and the game would be going on and he'd be up standing in the mm-hmm. eyes up in the sky, looking at looking butterflies, down the ground, picking things up because the game was so, and of course it's Little League Baseball. The yeah. kids are trying to learn how to pitch. Mm-hmm. The pitcher's trying to learn how to throw the ball over the plate. He can't do it consistently. The kid at the plate doesn't hit the ball very well and he can't get the ball to the out. The outfielder doesn't get any play. And so I'm just saying the structure of the game is such that over 20 years you lose people playing the game. And we see it all the time. And I, I, that's, that's so destructive to me for the sport of baseball. Baseball's not alone. Football fights this same problem in a whole different question, <laughs> right? Yeah. Losing young kids in our area where we are educated families mm-hmm. for safety reasons. Okay, for baseball, it's, it's pace of play. It's action. And I, I know that uh, people I admire in the game tremendously rail about the conversation about pace of play. And I have said this forever. Uh, my my friend John McEnroe and I in tennis used to have this argument. John has come around to my way of thinking. They say, if you know that a movie is three hours long, do you go? Like, you know beforehand that the movie's three hours long. Do you go? The reviews better be pretty damn good. It yeah. better be an Oscar-winning film. It better be, you know, Citizen freaking Kane yeah. for me to go to sit in a movie theater. Well, why is a baseball game any different? Why, why is a tennis match that could take four or five hours any different. Our attention spans are never designed for that. And and one of the great lessons I learned about speaking way back when public speaking was the average length of a vaudeville act 11 minutes. Mm-hmm. Vaudevillians understood <laughs> the attention span. Mm-hmm. The average length of a vaudeville act was 11 minutes. So my point to baseball to finish up here is that yes, they have to address pace of play. They have to address length of game to keep young people watching. And the reality, the fact that I've been told multiple times over the last couple of years is that the average age, the demographic of baseball is gray, gray, and grayer. The average age of a television viewer for Major League Baseball is the oldest of any of the major sports by a a healthy margin. Well, I mean, one of the biggest sports you have now is gaming. I mean, people go to arenas to watch people play games online or whatever and, and it's I, I'm not sure if the older generation understands this how attention spans have changed that way but uh, yeah I, I'm fine with for example a pitch clock I think a lot of that should come naturally it used to be guys get the ball they throw right but uh, I think it's television and more games and I think it started with the Yankees and the Red Sox everything was a drama every moment was a drama every step in and out of the box these guys knew that everybody was watching them and I think that slowed down the game a little bit as well because they're trying to milk every second out of the drama instead of just playing the damn game yeah and there's multiple I mean the Yankees Red Sox in the early 2000s was clearly a big part of it right there's no question there's still four-hour games right and 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 I and I you know I think there's a lot of reasons over my time I mean I was uh blessed to work for a year and a half with the Oakland A's when Tony La Russa first came in as a manager. And I watched Tony. Tony was a big part of this because Tony's the guy that started the one-out relievers. He really, I mean, I'm not saying he invented it, but Tony was the first manager to accelerate the use of that as a tactic. And Tony would have, and it started, he had Eckersley to close, and he had two lefties and two righties in front of him. 
And that's what, and so Tony was saying, I'm going to have five or six, you know, it was Gene, Gene Nelson's and Eric Plunk's and Greg Catteray and Rick Honeycutt. He had all those guys in front of Eck, and Tony would come in for a hitter or two here or there. And that was what, ex- he's the, the guy that really accelerated and almost perfected the use of that rhythm that now has become standard place right, right. in baseball. That lengthens the game. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and Tony used it brilliantly, but it has now become such a thing that, I mean, now it's, I mean, now look what we've gone. We've gone to this concept of a start, of an opener, which right. is just mind-bending to me. But I also don't, I, I can't argue with the fact that there are some, there's some metrics that prove it makes some sense. Yeah, well, they're research. I'm not stupid enough to deny that. <laughs> yeah, well. But 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 it's not it's not terribly appealing. Yeah, well, just try convincing Bumgarner of that, you know. Yeah, know. <laughs> well, good for him because yeah. look, we were talking before we started this, Jack Array, uh, that you know, I the the greatest baseball single baseball moment I was ever around. Not Barry Bonds home runs, but Jack Morris Game Seven World Series single greatest individual performance I ever saw. I have a ring in my drawer at home because of it, and I tell Jack every time I bump into him, and I worked a few games with him the year I went back to the Twins in 2011, and I still thank him every time uh, because I have a ring because of him. And that was the single greatest individual performance I ever saw. That's Hall of Fame on its own. There should never have been a question to be about Jack Morris being in the Hall of Fame. And that would never happen today, Ray. Never because of this Ray, I, that game ended. It was years after that game before I ever knew how many pitches Jack Morris threw that night? And how never many? knew. I, I can't remember. I've heard the numbers since, but I'm saying that night there was never there was never a conversation. There was no scoreboard count. There was nothing about that. No one ever. We were sitting around that night watching the game in the midst of this gripping drama. No one ever turned and asked. I wonder how many pitches he's thrown. Yeah. How does he look? Yeah. You know. And he got out of a jam in the eighth. That you know, every manager today would pull him. Right to to go to his specialist in that situation, he ends up getting a Sid Bream double play. Right, and I said it'll never happen again. And now you're going to get me going down the rabbit hole of Baseball Reference to look how many pitches he threw in that game. Yeah. It's there, and I I know I've heard the number, I and mean, I can't remember. I've talked to Jack about it, and I I don't recall the number. I mean, it was less than 200. I know that, and it was also more than 100. It wasn't like he threw 80 pitches in 10 innings. But the number wasn't it wasn't extreme. And my, but my point is we didn't even know, and nobody cared. And when, when Jack Morris went back in the dugout in that game seven at the Metrodome after the ninth inning, and Tom Kelly, the manager, walked up and said, Jack, you know, that's enough. You've, you've given us everything you have. He didn't walk up and say, Jack, you've thrown 128 pitches. That's enough. That's not what TK said. TK said, Jack, you've given us all you have. You know, you've done your job. Thank you so much. And Jack just said, I'm going back out there. And, uh, you know, it goes back to the great Marischal Spahn story from 1963 at Candlestick where they played 16 innings. They both pitched all 16. And at one point, I guess, was it Alvin Dark was the manager? Went up, whoever the manager of the Giants was that year, went up to tell Marichal after, what, 11 or 12 innings, Mm -hmm. that was it. And Marichal pointed over to the other dugout. He says, you see that old man over there? Because Spahn was 40, whatever at the time. Because as long as that old man pitch, I pitch. (laughs) And they both ended up pitching 16. Yeah, that was was a good call. Of course, the money invested in the players back then isn't what it is now. And I think that's part of it, why they kind of give them kid glove treatment. Uh, You think Barry Bonds ever makes the Hall of Fame? I, I do. And I'm not sure how because they've changed all the voting mechanisms and procedures, maybe is a better word, uh, since I've been out of baseball and I don't follow it as carefully as I used to. But and I don't think it'll happen with the current, what does he have, three years left, Ray, I think, on the ballot? I don't think it'll happen in these three years, but I think it will happen postscript because eventually there'll be a room 
and the room will be populated by Bonds' peers, basically. Uh, or at least the majority in the room will be Bonds' peers. And they will come to accept what I've come to accept. And I do credit my friend Bruce Jenkins for changing my view on this. Bruce and I sat in a bar in New York some years ago and had this conversation because, look, I lived it. I saw it. I helped sell it. And I have always taken my own responsibility for this. And that's why I never point the finger at anybody else in baseball for what happened in that era because I was, I saw it happening and I didn't know what it was. I don't think anybody in our world of broadcasting knew what was going on, but we knew something was going on. We knew it wasn't natural. You could see it with our own eyes. Um, but the ride was fun and the ride was rewarding and baseball was coming off the, the destructive 94-95 strike. And that era helped resuscitate the game. And we all benefited from it. So I, I, I point no fingers other than to say, it at, at, you know, when, I, when we found out the depth of it, I was disappointed like everybody. But at, at some point, Bruce really was the guy that hammered home the point to me is you measure people against their peers. Absolutely. And, and I know this for a fact because I learned this from players that of the, let's say, Bonds hit 73 homers off 55 different pitchers in 2001. Let's just say that was the number. Right. How many of those 55 were on something? Yeah. Probably a pretty good sure number. A few. And that's the that's the mindset that I've come to. Yeah. And so judge him against his peers. A lot of the people he was hitting against and playing against that year were also involved. And you talk to hitters, and they talk about his intelligence as a hitter, how he studied, what he knew about opposing pitchers, what he, he always seemed to know what pitch was going to be thrown. He could handle everything, and, and one of the things that isn't talked about a lot with him, but there were very few hitters in this game who could take an inside pitch and keep it fair, but he hit it so hard that it wouldn't hook. It would stay inside the foul pole. I don't see hardly any hitters who can do that now. No, Ray, one of the great um, relationships I gained over my years with the Giants uh, where I did pregame shows all the time and very proud that I had a lot of Hall of Famers on the pregame show, including Barry. Barry agreed to do one a month with me at a time when he wasn't talking a lot, but I forged a pretty good relationship with Barry, and he did. He did one pregame show a month with me, but um, one of the best outside the Giants relationships was with Tony Gwynn, and he was an extraordinary guy, and of course we played the Padres 19 times a year, so we saw Tony a lot, and it got to the point where Tony would come over and say hi to me at the batting cage. I mean, by 2001, after nine years of getting to know him. And in 2001, we played a game at the old uh, Jack Murphy, as I still call it. And Barry hit a home run in late in the game. And he did exactly what you talked about. The pitch was in, off the plate. And Barry spins on the ball and hits a seed right down the right field line in the bleachers for a home run late in the game to win the game. And I can't remember the exact inning or score. But I remember that the next day, here comes this conversation with Tony. And Tony says he had to go in last. He said, I got to go in last night. The pitcher was in the video room watching a replay of the home run and was distraught because he felt like he had blown it and cost his team the game. And Tony said, I had to sit there and tell the kid. It took me 15 minutes to tell him dude, man, there's no other human being that could do that. There's no other human being than that guy that could take that pitch and hit it that way and not bend it and keep it fair. And I'll, I'll never forget Tony telling me how he had to talk this kid pr off proverbially a off a ledge yeah. 
because he was so distraught. And it's saying this is something that only Barry Bonds could do. Yeah, he's the best hitter I've ever seen in person. I wasn't old enough to see Ted Williams, but uh, he, he's definitely the best. And, uh, you know, all the other stuff even taken into consideration, I, I do think he deserves to be in. I mean, we could spin some tails here for a long time, but I think we're going to freeze out here. <laughs> so the weather's been miserable this week, but uh, great catching up with you, Ted. I know we're going to hear hear you and we're going to see you in a lot of stuff in the future you know Pac-12 and and tennis and all that stuff Uh, one of the great voices in American sports thanks for joining us today well Ray it's great seeing you it's great knowing you it's one congratulations on this by the way your entry into the world of podcasting it's terrific and uh, who knows hopefully I'll see you around a ballpark here soon absolutely I'd love to do that and uh, the the great thing about this podcast is we get to do these one-on-one interviews with a lot of really interesting people so uh, thanks for joining us Ted all right Ray good luck Ted Robinson on the Triples Alley Report.